0: inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know ask katie anything hey everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything i am your host and licensed therapist katie morton if you don't know who i am welcome i have been creating educational mental health content online for many years like over 10 so today we have 10 questions as per usual if you're new here welcome Um, i get the questions from my podcast channel which is called opinions that don't matter that's the name of the podcast i have with my husband sean and over on that channel in the community tab usually on sunday mornings this week i forgot usually i schedule them just so i don't have to think about them and post them in the moment I forgot that we were out of scheduled one. So it was a little bit late and I apologize. But usually Sunday mornings, I will post in there asking for your questions and you can leave them as comments below that post. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into this first question. This question says, Hi, Katie, why do I feel like I failed at my illness? Hmm. I had anorexia for several years and then it morphed into bulimia, but I don't really feel like being bulimic and more of a quote unquote failed anorexic. It really keeps me from wanting to get better and makes me so ashamed. What can I do about it? Being refused treatment because my weight is normal didn't really help. I know my case is specific, but this feeling of failing at a disorder might apply to other cases as well. Thank you for all that you do. Your podcast helps me so much. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, Great question. And I know you're saying it's very specific, but this is also very, very common. I have a ton of patients in general, but I find it more common in eating disorders and self-injury than in other mental illnesses, but it does still happen in other mental illnesses. However, a lot of us can feel like we're not sick enough or because we didn't get this specific diagnosis, then we've failed. And a lot of my, what used to be called EDNOS or eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Now it's called OSFED or otherwise specified eating or feeding disorder. Who cares what they're called? It's just kind of the catch-all for eating disorders when we don't quite meet the criteria for one of the diagnoses that the DSM is deemed appropriate to be in their book, which spoilers, a DSM can be trash a lot of times. It helps a little bit, but it's trash a lot also. So anyway, when we don't meet that criteria, we can fall into these other, you know, NOS type diagnoses, you know, like it's otherwise specified, like it just doesn't quite fit. And that can cause us to feel like we aren't a real insert thing. Like, I'm not, I am not. don't have a real eating disorder. I'm not really depressed, right? We just feel like we've fallen into these kind of not real diagnoses. Or we can judge ourselves, like when it comes to self-injury, which you guys know isn't really a diagnosis yet, because again, the DSM can be a hot piece of garbage sometimes. We can think, oh, I'm not sick enough. I don't do it enough. It's not bad enough to warrant help, right? We can have all these judgments. And the reason that that happens is because Our negative self-talk is so intense that even us in the grips of our eating disorder or our self-injury urges or whatever it is, but let's just stick to eating disorder because that's the question at hand. We're so in it that our eating disorder is taking over all of our thoughts. And we all know our eating disorder only lies, right? It only tells us false things and uh, judges us and puts us down and tells us we're not enough. And it's just another way that it's doing it. So an eating disorder is competitive, usually looks out and it'll notice any kind of other potential eating disorder behavior. And if we know someone has an eating disorder, hello, eating disorder treatment, eating disorder groups. We know all those other people have eating disorders as well. We can find ourselves like wanting to compete against them or be quote unquote worse off than they are. And if we aren't, which by the way, our eating disorder will never let us see what's really going on, it always tells us that we're not as bad as these other people. Then it will tell us we're not sick enough and we need to try harder and we're failing at this. We're not good enough, right? That's just what it feeds on, and pun intended, right? Our eating disorder is a numb out from something else going on and so in order for it to numb us out it has to take over all of our thoughts and brain space so it's going to find a way to always be around that's why it's like a chameleon and it weasels its way in which is why it's hard to get rid of them not impossible and not something that we can't overcome and recover from but that's why it's difficult right we all know it's difficult recovery is fucking hard worth it and it is possible but it's hard right change is hard and so because that's how eating disorders work. And that's how they're so effective at numbing us out from the trauma in our past or the, you know, the, um, I mean, an emotional abuse is trauma. It can be, by the way, I'm just saying, using another example, the emotional abuse we sustained because our parents were so emotionally neglectful and we're never around. Like there's all these different things that can be going on and we don't, have the bandwidth to process it or acknowledge it and our eating disorder is like oh well you can focus on me instead and so we do and it keeps us held by like continuing to judge us continue to tell us we're not sick enough not bad enough and all that jazz and so that's really why we can feel also I will be honest from my experience and I'd love to know from you guys in the comments I hear a lot from my patients with eating disorders that being anorexic and like super, super thin is like always the ultimate goal. Even if we've always been bulimic or we've always had binge eating disorder, it's like for some reason we think that that's like the only real eating disorder. I don't know. I get, I push back on that all the time, but I've gotten that a lot over the years. And I think it's societally driven. I think it's part of our diet culture and thinking that, you know, when they talk about eating disorders, they usually show super, super thin people, not that we can look, be any size and shape. Um, So I don't know. But anyways, I think it might, that might be part of it as well. And part of what's feeding into this. I've failed because I don't fit into what I thought was an eating disorder initially. Does that make sense? Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, I wonder whether this feeling also applies to self-harm. I already kind of answered that. I sometimes feel like things were never bad enough and I've just been making everything up because it never caused any harm bad enough to need medical attention. It's that same thing. How does it keep us from thinking about the things we don't want to think about? And keeping us numbed out by continuing to pull us deeper and deeper and deeper into it, taking up all of our thoughts and brain space and making it impossible for us to think about anything else. So, yeah, it does. And I do want to also talk about the fact that she says, I know my case is specific, but this feeling of failing at the disorder, you know, because she was refused treatment because of her weight, that part always pisses me off. And I will never not yell at an insurance company on the phone about this. Unfortunately, a lot of our systems, even in the UK, I've heard from many of you in Canada, in Australia, I don't know about other countries. Hopefully it's different. But in the States and a lot of other countries, our insurance only likes to cover eating disorder treatment when we are underweight, which if we know, you know, most of eating disorders don't cause us to be underweight. So it's bullshit. And we need to push back and we need to fight back. And I've successfully fought back against that. And now that, I mean, it's been years now, but now that binge eating disorder is in the DSM, we thought it would be easier. In some cases it is, but a lot of insurances haven't changed their protocols and plans. It's bullshit anyway. And I think that that is part of the frustration that I feel and probably also what feeds into this negative thought spiral and what continues to energize your eating disorder. And so the really the the final question I want to address is what can I do about it? Tell your therapist that this is happening. Notice the thoughts. Be curious about them. We don't have to judge them. We don't have to change them right away. Just be curious. Start paying attention to what you're telling yourself. And then I want you to start checking your facts. I want you to start finding a way to use bridge statements to argue back. Now, one of these tools might work better than the others. One, neither might work. And we might just have to start building up our self worth, which I have videos about building self confidence. Those are things like being kind to other people, like giving people compliments, also like building mastery, like working on something and getting better at it. There's a lot of ways that we can do this kind of thing. And so, yeah, anyways, those are just some of my thoughts. Those are some of the ways that we can kind of. Uh, get out of it and the most important is just getting that help if you're not in therapy currently and you're struggling it's reach out for help it's okay to get help and get some support because we're going to need someone to remind us to do these things like noticing the thoughts checking the facts using bridge statements and arguing back and all that good stuff okay and i'm sorry you're going through this it's shitty eating is sort of suck man but it can and will get better okay question number two says, Hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Is it possible for older teenagers ages 16 to 19 to be groomed? Also, is grooming always explicitly sexual? Or can it be only vaguely sexual or not even sexual at all? Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question. Now, I want to read the exact, well, the way that I define grooming. So there's not like an exact definition, but I'm going to tell you what grooming is. I made some notes so I wouldn't forget. So grooming is really when someone in our life, they're usually older than us, builds a relationship or builds some trust and emotional connection to us in order, this is the important part, in order to manipulate, exploit and abuse you. So someone's going to try to build a relationship with us in order to do things that are harmful. Now, you can realize in there that it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be anybody, any age, Um, gender, race, it doesn't matter. People groom people of all ages. So yes, someone from the ages of 16 to 19 could be groomed. And it doesn't always have to be sexual. I know we talk about it a lot when it comes to like sexualization of children, because that's almost always present in sexual abuse cases. However, we can be groomed for a lot of things, right? Manipulate, exploit and abuse. And the reason it's always just it's just the intent behind it right and so they don't um they can just groom us to get us to do things for them or to make things easier in this way or that way or to get us to stand up for them at work right this could be a peer this could be you know so it doesn't really matter i wish i had i wish honestly it didn't happen at all but i wish it was more specific and it didn't happen to everybody no matter what age we could all be groomed um it's all about, or it's more about the intent behind the relationship, right? Because we can build relationships with people and and want to grow closer and get connected and feel emotionally connected to someone. But someone who's grooming someone is only doing that because they want to exploit them, right? They want to manipulate, exploit, or abuse. And yeah and it's not always someone again doesn't matter how old we are it's not always someone older than us the the power that people can get in situations like this is through that manipulation or ability to coerce right that that gives them the the power it's not always just age dependent does that make sense i hope that that makes sense and is clear so we can be groomed just to wrap it up we can be groomed from any at any age and it's not always sexual and it, it could be it could be but not always okay Um, And people who do that are dirtbags and deserve to be punished. Okay. Question number three says, Hey, Katie, happy Thursday. What is religious trauma? And how do you know if you've experienced it? I am part of the LGBTQ community and I am going to church, but it also conflicts my sexuality. I've looked up some of the signs and symptoms, but I'm unsure because I've I am second guessing myself. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. Okay. I have a video that will probably come out around the time this podcast is coming out because I have been working on a video all about religious trauma. And I will agree, there's no clear definition about what it is. And it's really confusing to read about. And then, of course, when you're reading about it, there's a lot of churches and other religions who want to talk about it and address it, which I love. But then that can be confusing, too, because their goal is usually to keep their parishioners in church and to help them feel heard and understood when we just want to talk about religious trauma removed from church itself, if that makes sense. So, okay. Religious trauma is is honestly like any trauma. So think of uh, the way that we we're just talking about grooming, right? When people are manipulating, um, they're coercing us to do things we wouldn't normally do. They can be abusing us emotionally is usually what happens in churches, but sometimes sexual abuse. I've heard from many of you that you were taken advantage of by an older person in church. So, Religious trauma overall is when you're through your religion, they are using tools and I don't even know what I want to call it, but it's like they are doing things in church, whether it's through the the preacher and the pastor giving the sermon, whether it's through um, the volunteer part of the church or they're using all parts of the church as a way to emotionally abuse us meaning that they don't believe there's any room for independent thought we can be shot down or shamed if we ask a question about something like how do we know that this happened or i'm curious about this this story in the bible and where that came to be right or how come we always have to do all the work for pastor so and so you know how come he doesn't put his sermons together like we should be free to ask questions and get answers and not shamed or told to shut up and sit down and pretty much do what we're told, right? So that uh, lack of support for independent thought is a form of emotional abuse and usually is how, you know, religious trauma can, can happen. Another very common way that it can happen is by being told over and over that who we are and what, what our interests are are not supported and are, are a sin, Right. Just who we are in general is a sin. And then I want to bring that up because you said you're part of the LGBTQ community. There are amazing and wonderful churches that are LGBTQ allies and, you know, supportive of that community. We had a ton of those in L.A. that were wonderful, especially for my friends who were gay um, and wanted to still be a part of a church because religion and faith was a big part of who they were can be incredibly healing however not all churches are like that and some churches think that being gay is a sin like what and so that is emotional abuse again and can lead to religious trauma right you think of trauma like when we feel when what's happening to us is too much for our brain to process and we fear for our own emotional or physical safety or the emotional physical safety of someone else right and you can see how that could happen. And I could really, really dig into this. But again, I have a whole video coming out. I'm putting the final touches on it right now. Um, and it should be coming out, like I said, probably around the time that this podcast is. So hopefully, you were able to go over to my YouTube channel and just look up, you know, Katie Morton religious trauma, it'll pop up. And that will give you a better definition and drill down even deeper into what can cause religious trauma and what it is because there's just so... And nobody's talking about it in a real way and it's hard to understand and we can of course second guess ourselves and it's hard to break away i didn't even get into that in the video because there was just not it was already gonna be way 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 too long but maybe that's the next like installment of it because breaking away from our church and finding a way to have a healthy spiritual life and healthy faith is part of that healing sometimes if we still want that to be part of our lives then we're going to have to find a way to incorporate it healthfully And you can do that through, you know, there are actual therapists, there was this website, I don't even know if I included it in the video, but I can put it in the description. There's a website where you can look up therapists who deal specifically with religious trauma. And just having a therapist who is supportive of you and supportive of your process and helps you heal through it will be just so key in your recovery. And if you even think that you're, you're suffering from religious trauma, you most likely are. I know a lot of us think that like, oh, the symptoms have to be this bad and we have to be feeling that way. I'm here to tell you so often, like 99% of the time, people wait too long to get help. They wait for way too many months or years to reach out and speak up. And the sooner we do, the better. So if you're thinking this is something you're going through, please reach out, speak up and get some support because it'll get better more quickly. And I'm telling you, you don't have to feel bad first in order for it to feel better or for you to warrant getting help. Okay. Moving on. Question number four. It says, hi, Katie. This will be a long question. It's not that long. Don't worry. <laughs> Sorry for asking for your time. See, look, at, you can take up space and time. No need to apologize. I was talking about people pleasing a couple of weeks ago. And here, this is a good example of something that I w- used to do. I'm just calling you out that you don't need to apologize to me. I will gladly give you my time. Here in the Netherlands, I am 30 years out of treatment because they didn't want to help me anymore. The reason why is because I was too complex and the risk of killing myself was too high. Now I've been following for almost two years therapy via Skype with a therapist from Canada. It's going way better. Sounds like maybe in the Netherlands, whatever that treatment place you were in wasn't actually helpful and doesn't, doesn't know how to treat suicidality or potentially, you know, if you, I don't know if you have borderline personality disorder, but a lot of my BPD patients have been told this in the past, and it's just a shame because people just don't understand. Okay. Now, um, it's going way better. My old psychiatrist is helping me here in the Netherlands with medication, but every time I see her, I feel so scared. She's very kind, but she's also one of those people who gave up on me, and it still hurts. Of course. Of course. Do you have some advice for me? There's no other psychiatrist here that wants to help me because they still believe that I'm too sick to survive euthanasia is here is here and is very normal too if you suffer too long and too much I hope you can give me some advice thanks for all that you do much love from Cynthia Cynthia I am so sorry that you have such trash treatment over there and that they just like want to give up on you and then you have the option of taking your own life through euthanasia and they're I mean I know that I don't let's not get into that and the beliefs around that. But when it comes to mental illnesses, I believe that the treatment facilities and the mental health professionals need to do better because we can do better. And often we're just people are just negligent and it really pisses me off. And so, okay, I'm glad that you're seeing the therapist in Canada Um, with your psychiatrist. I would bring this up with her. I don't know if you feel able, but I, I honestly think it'd be fair to say to her hey, you know, sometimes I you're so kind and thank you so much for, for continuing to see me. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, I struggle sometimes coming in because I, I feel like, you know, you, you gave up on me. And I really need to talk about that because I need to process what happened. And that's really the truth. And maybe that's something actually, second, nicks that, I take that back. You could bring it up with your psychiatrist. I think that can be helpful. But with, you're going to want to process it through with your therapist from Canada. And the reason being is a psychiatrist usually, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the States, they don't give us that much time. So it's like, we want to go in and tell them how we're feeling and what's happening with our medication. And you could bring up, um, you know, sometimes I struggle to come here because I feel like you kind of gave up on me. And I'm really grateful that you're seeing me now, but that's what you know, I'm working through that in therapy. You can bring that up and give that gives her an opportunity to talk about it with you, which I hope she will offer and then at least gives you a space to then like prepare and practice with your therapist what you want to say, maybe in more detail, and you can say it to your psychiatrist or work on conversations so that, you know, you can have maybe a healing interaction. Because the fact that your psychiatrist is still seeing you tells me that she believes there is some hope, but I want you to hear that from her. And I think spending time in our therapy sessions to kind of process, people don't realize If we've been super suicidal, or if we've attempted to take our own life, that's a trauma, right? Fearing for our own emotional or physical safety could be trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's traumatizing. Not to mention... A lot of times I've had patients who feel like they need to grieve the fact that they weren't able to do it or pulled out the last minute or survived or whatever. There's grieving in there too. And I know that that seems kind of complicated and people might think, Katie, how are you supposed to support that? I'm not supporting that decision. I'm supporting the healing from it so that it doesn't happen again. And just giving yourself an opportunity to talk to your therapist about it and process it through will be really key and really healing. And talking about that trauma, because that's really what it was. I hope that helps. I hope that's some of the advice you were looking for, and it's something you can do. But again, bring it up with your therapist first. Role play, get prepared, so that you can bring it up with your psychiatrist, because we want to be prepared when we go in, since they don't usually give us, or at least in states, more than like 15, 20 minutes. And I want to make sure that you can at least say what you need to say in that amount of time. Okay, get a drink of water. Let's move on to question number five. says, hi, Katie. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions of what to tell a friend when they ask how they can help. It's a good question. I have a wonderful friend who's been very supportive in listening to me talk about my anxieties and other mental health concerns. But when she asks what she can do to help me, I have no idea. I know this is kind of a weird question because it's asking you to say what I would want. But I never know how to answer that myself. Happy Thursday to you and Roxy. Oh, she's actually outside running, running like a lunatic this morning. Okay. Um... And then there's a follow-up on this, but let's get into this first. So when a friend asks how they can help, let's be honest. Now, keep in mind that a friend can't make us feel better. They can't make things all of a sudden magically go away. But here's what we can tell them. We can figure out what would be helpful and supportive when we're feeling down, meaning, uh, maybe we have like a code, right? We text them a certain emoji when we just want them to just come over and sit with us, right? We need to come up with some things that they can do that feel good. It might be them texting or calling to check in. It might be them just showing up and watching TV with us, right? We don't have to talk about things. They don't have to have answers. We just need them to show up for us. Or is it just them checking in like the calls and texts? Hey, how are you? No, really, you know, what's going on? I, you know, this is what I went through today. How are you doing? thinking about the ways that they can support and then letting them know those is really all that they need to know. And if you can have some kind of code that makes it easy for you to communicate that need or want, that would be amazing. Um, And then another thing, if you struggle with triggers and you find yourself, you know, suffering from PTSD or anything that comes along with triggers, which really could be any kind of mental illness, if we get triggered a lot, what could they do to pull you out? Or if you struggle with panic attacks or dissociation, are there certain things that that friend could assist us with? Meaning, could they uh, try to get us to count the colors in the room? Could they touch us on the back? Would that be okay? Could they remind us to drink cold water or give us a cold washcloth? What could they do, right? Let's think of some of the ways that they can support when we're in those modes and we need someone to help keep us grounded. What could they do? Or are there certain things we want them to avoid doing, right? Like when you... You know, or I don't know, like when you raise your voice and you're trying to be heard in a conversation, I get really triggered or I don't even know what it would be. Everyone's triggers are different. But if it's something they cannot do, you know, like, oh, that perfume reminds me of my abuser. Can you not wear it? Okay. Right. There are some things that we can tell, ask someone to not do. Now, I do want to throw in there again, that our friends are not our saviors. They can't make us feel better or get better, but they can be supportive and improve our mood. And It just feels good to feel connected so that we don't we know we're not alone and we don't feel so isolated right and so maybe or hopefully that kind of sparked some ideas for you and got you kind of thinking on the ways that your friend could help and just start writing some things down maybe keep it in the notes on your phone so when they ask you next time how they can help you're like you know what i was thinking about that the other day let me get into my notes i'll tell you some of these ways that you can help and if they ask i'm just here if anybody's like oh, but I could never really ask them for anything because like, I'm not worthy because hello, negative self-talk, right? I want you to know they're asking. And when someone asks that's because they want to help. And so let's give them that support and give them an opportunity to show up for us, right? Because it's, it's kind of that, it's kind of that, like, give and take in relationships. Like, like if a friend wants to give to us, it's best for us to take, like, sorry, I was just, my brain, brain kind of went over here for a second so bear with me because I was just thinking of imagine you know when you want to give someone a gift or you want to pay for something and someone won't let you I know that sounds kind of silly but let's say I'm out to lunch with one of my girlfriends I'm like no 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 I want to get it she's like no I refuse to let you do that and like throws her card to the waiter after I've already put my card into the you know she's like split it kind of thing that doesn't allow me to do what I wanted to do and it's not I know I know it seems like, but you don't have to do that, but I want to. And that's what the friend is saying is like, I want to help you. Just let me help you. And so if we have some th- ways and things that they can do to support and help, it's great to have those things on tap and be able to read that list. So if any of you in your mind are thinking like, oh, I can't let them help me, then I'll be forever indebted. No, no, no. They want to do something for you. Let them do it. And it's best if you let them know how, otherwise they're kind of stumbling around in the dark and they could inadvertently make things worse. So I know I could get on a tangent and sorry, my brain was a little scattered there because I was trying to, I all of a sudden was like, oh my God, it's like um, my grandma was telling me, and this will be my last little story, my grandma was telling me recently because my mom... um, wanted to help my brother with stuff. And I always get frustrated because I'm like, he's a grown adult mom. He can do it on his own. Don't, you don't have to help him. He can figure it out. Right. Cause I'm a grown adult and I don't, you know, I don't need her help. And my grandma was telling me, she's like, your mom wants to help you and your brother because she's your mother and you need to let her help. She's like, you don't have to fight back so hard, Katie, let people support you. She wants to, and she wants to do the same for your brother. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I should like accept this assistance. (laughs) so know that I struggle with it too it's my own my own stuff but I just want to put it out there that like if someone's asking how they can help let's give them some ways to really do it and there was a comment on this that said also if you're the person asking how can I help and your friend just says I don't know or nothing how can you help you can offer up some of the things that I said you can say um well would it be helpful if I just showed up let's say you know every other friday and we just watch tv would that be beneficial or do you want me to call and text you every couple days just to check in or want to make some plans together plans can be really helpful for struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts plans are good um even if we might try to cancel it's just good to like try to create those plans um yeah offer some of those things and then just see what what resonates with them or are there things that i can do when you're starting to feel anxious like you know, touch, does that help or things I can say, you know, we can kind of prompt it. But again, the responsibility is not on us to come up with what helps them best. It's on them to tell us because we can't read their minds. Right. But you can bring up some of those things and hopefully that will start them, the the wheels turning and they'll be able to think and come up with some ways that we can help. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, we hear a lot about transference but I haven't heard many people speak on erotic transference. What is a driving factor behind erotic transference? Have you ever had a client be open with you about theirs? And do therapists ever get erotic countertransference? Thank you. Now, I have a whole video about this. It's called, I think it's called like Help, I Have a Crush on My Therapist. Or if you just look on YouTube, Katie Morton Crush on Therapist, it should pop up. I talk about erotic transference in that. Now, if anybody's wondering what this is, uh, transference itself is when we are in therapy and we transfer another relationship that we have in our lives onto our therapist, meaning that I would maybe treat my therapist like I had my father. Let's say I used to fight with my dad a lot or something, or maybe even like because my dad died when I was 24. That like that grieving process of me being angry for him not being here, I could take it out on my therapist and treat them like they're him. Right. So that's transference. Very, very common. Happens in almost every therapeutic relationship counter transference on the flip side is when I as the therapist act out of that transference meaning I don't act therapeutically I act like that person that you're treating me like remember like if you're treating me like your father I'm going to act like your father if you're treating me like that spouse that never showed them love you're going to lash out back and that reaction from your therapist is not healthy it's really 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 bad And as a therapist, we're supposed to be in our own therapy, be talking with other clinicians about difficult cases and taking care of ourselves so that that doesn't happen. Now, okay, so now that we kind of understand what those words are, erotic transference is essentially when we transfer on romantic thoughts or erotic thoughts onto our therapist and act we will we'll often think we have a crush on our therapist or thinking that we want to date them or that they're the love of our life or that we want to get married. They're the only person who understands this. We, it can go in a lot of different directions. Okay. So erotic transference is also very common and it comes out of a lot of different or comes from a lot of different reasons or a lot of different backgrounds. Now, the first and the most common that I found in my patients is attachment. Um, especially coming out of abuse, we can have neglectful parents so we never formed a healthy attachment also if we were like sexually abused or physically abused or emotionally abused we can think that love looks uh, in a really unhealthy way right or we don't know how to have relationships in a way that isn't sexual especially if we were like sexually exploited from a young age so that can drive it Um, we can also have struggled with relationships again back to attachment and not have had many friendships and so we don't really know what a healthy relationship looks like, and we can confuse it for love. So that can be very, very, and I mean, romantic love, love in relationships is healthy. Now, so there's that component. Then there's also the component of, and I've talked about this in relation to uh, why why we can stay in like sexually abusive situations or why um, why a lot of times we are like, we have trauma bonds and we're connected to our abuser. And that's because we can feel like, oh, out of everybody, they picked us. And so it's kind of that like feeling unique and feeling, and you're all unique, by the way, but feeling that that a sexual connection is the only way that we can be important or be valued. And so in order to continue the relationship with our therapist, we think that it has to be romantic in some way. So there's, there's those two components. And then the final reason that I find, at least in my experience or in what I've researched and what I've read over the years, is that. It can be a struggle with boundaries because we can be, again, it's kind of going back to attachment because a lot of my uh, disorganized type attachment based people will really struggle with like this push pull relationship, no relationship. Is this, they won't know how to categorize it or how to protect themselves and others in relationships. And so they'll overstep boundaries by, you know, feeling romantically connected to the therapist. Does that make sense? And it all is kind of born out of attachment trauma and abuse and how we're trying to make sense of it now. And I have had one client be open with me about theirs, meaning they said that they had a crush on me or that they wanted to date me or that they thought that, you know, something about me was it was like perfect for them, blah blah blah. Um and it's it's really helpful. It, as uncomfortable as it may feel for you, it's actually again very common and very it's easier for you to bring it up than the therapist to try to dig into it because we can be really defensive and not want to talk about it and be embarrassed. Um, but, but your therapist is probably aware and talking about it. It helps us better understand where it's coming from and heal the wound that this is born out of, meaning like from the abuse or because of, you know, the lack of healthy boundaries growing up or, or feeling the need to, to feel, Like we're special and not being able to have that come from within, right? And then that'd be like self-worth, confidence, and all the stuff that we work on there. It just gives us more information so that we kind of can work together. It gives us a better path towards healing for you. And so I have had a client be open about it. Um, It was really helpful in the healing process and something that we worked on. And I think it helped us move more quickly forward. And it also grew our a therapeutic relationship in a more healthy way for them to understand like what in what's involved in a therapeutic relationship and what is not, and therapists should not get erotic ca- countertransference. I can personally say I never have. Uh, the there's so much wrong with that. First of all, the the power dynamic is is off. They know nothing about you as the therapist, and you know everything about them. That's just not that's not a healthy relationship when it comes like outside of therapy, right? especially a romantic relationship. And the therapist is supposed to be the one that's helping the other. And so then is that relationship deemed to be like helper and the like person that you're trying to fix, like the helpless? I don't know. The dynamic is completely off. And I think that there is no place for that ever. And if a therapist is feeling that, please get into your own therapy, talk to other clinicians about it and work through it because it shouldn't be happening. Countertransference in general shouldn't be happening. Okay, and there was a question at the end of this. It said, As an add-on question, what can you do to get over it if you experience this with your therapist and you would never ever discuss it with them? Oh, and there's actually one more add-on behind this um, or after that, I guess. And to be honest, I know this is frustrating, but it's best if you can bring it up with them and you discuss it with them because they can help you to figure out where it comes from. Now, you can do some of your own self-discovery you can kind of be curious about where this is coming from for you like i mentioned a lot of the reasons that it happens are those things that you struggle with and then you can bring those things up in therapy say like attachment something that you're working on or you wonder if you've been traumatized in your life and you'd like to you know potentially work on that you know there can be a lot of things like that or uh you know do we struggle with boundaries and relationships right you can bring up some of those things with them and work through it because it's in it's it's not actually about the crush that we have on our therapist or the erotic transference as we call it. It's really about like something else. And so if we can figure out what that something else is on our own, we can bring that up in therapy and work to process through because by doing that work, that crush will go away, okay? Now there was another question on this that says, hey Katie, as an add-on, can people have transference coming from multiple places? Like, can we transfer feelings from a few broken relationships into our life, like our mother and another one? Of course, transference can come from a lot of different places. And often it's, I find, and this I could be wrong, but in my experience, I find that they come, like you said, a lot of broken relationships, like a few of them, they usually have a pattern to them. And that's why we kind of like put them all onto our therapist, sometimes not. And I've had patients who will like have transference through one relationship. And then like a few months later, it'll be a different kind of thing that they're hitting me with. So that can happen too. But I find often that we transfer these feelings from like a, a few different relationships, but they all have this similar pattern. And we tend to react out of them or or put it onto our therapist and do that transference kind of act um, over and over as a way to kind of process it and find a healthier way. So anyway long story short, is yes, it can come from multiple places. Yes, transference can come at all sorts of different times can come and go. And yes, we can transfer from, you know, a few broken relationships in our life. Um, And and you'll honestly be surprised sometimes when they're triggered and when we find ourselves doing it. Like I said, one month, it can be one person, another month, it can be another. So whatever your process is, just know that that's okay. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This says, Hey, Katie, I want to stop living my life through the gaze of trauma. After watching your videos and listening to The Place We Find Ourselves podcast, I realized that I've experienced more trauma than I thought, and I am now validating it. Yay. I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but the validation key part is such a a core component of healing. says, thank you for your help in that. Of course, I'm glad I could be any small part of this. I feel like I can finally recognize the harm in my childhood without deeming my experiences as small and without seeing my emotionally neglectful parents as bad or justifying their actions like a middle zone. The thing is, I'm also realizing that a lot of my life goals, decisions and wants are influenced by the trauma that I've gone through. I can't afford therapy, but I do have access to free counseling limited to 12 sessions. I know that counseling is not the same as therapy and trauma work can be emotionally intense. So I don't know if a counselor is going to be able to do trauma work in that way and in that limited time. Would it be wise for me to go into counseling for my trauma or should I wait till a possible and distant future two plus years where I can have access to a psychologist or psychotherapist? If not, what are some things that I can do or resources I can use to help in the time being? Thank you for all your help. This is a great question. Now, um, someone asked below this, said, what's the difference between a counselor and a therapist? And the person who asked this question said counselors are short term where they are and therapists are more long term. Now, in the States, it's a little bit different. Like I talked about on a previous podcast in the state of California, I learned one of my professors reached out and was like, hey, in your book, you didn't say that counselors can't diagnose I guess in California at that time they couldn't diagnose when my book came out in 2018 I don't know if that has changed um, but overall it wouldn't feel any different to anybody out there if you have seen a licensed therapist a licensed counselor or a licensed social worker as long as they're licensed it's usually around the same type of feel for you and the same roughly the same training we have different focuses but roughly the same training so because you only get 12 sessions I wonder if they can extend those I'd be very curious um but for right now, I might, it's tricky. This is tricky because 12 sessions isn't that many, but it's not that few either. So part of me feels like I would want you to go into it for your trauma and I want you to start talking through certain things that are really bothering you. Um, If you're able to kind of cut the crap in your therapy, meaning, and I mean that in the most loving way, I mean that if you're able to dig right in, not everybody's able. It can be overwhelming. It can be re-traumatizing. I'm not encouraging you to move too too fast, right? I just, if you're able to do that, then I think the 12 sessions could be super beneficial. I think you'd be able to kind of get in, jump in and get to work. Now, are we going to be healed in 12 sessions? Most likely not, but I think we can get some tools and techniques. We can better understand our triggers and ways to build resilience. And we can kind of have things to help us move forward so that in the two plus years in the distance future, hopefully sooner than that, whenever we can, we can get in to see a therapist and start really working on this stuff. Um, And I don't know, it sounds like your parents were emotionally neglectful. I think the emotionally absent mother is an amazing book. There's also The Unavailable Father, another amazing book. They're all in my Amazon store. So if you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, you can find all those books. Also, my new book, Traumatized, is available now in the the first chunk of it, like the first like four or five chapters is more about understanding trauma and what it is. And then the second half, there's 15 chapters in this the second half is about healing finding the right treatment ways to build resilience um you know how to how to talk about what happened and it's all the process-based stuff and so i think um that could be beneficial and could be a resource for you as you work through on your own because the way to make those 12 sessions really like really get the maximum amount of uh, support out of them would be to do some of the work on the outside from you like outside a session every night you should be doing something to like whether it's reading a book whether it's doing some kind of you know worksheet or something like that we can maximize those 12 weeks and really get us to a point where hopefully we feel less reactive we have some tools and techniques that would be my goal for you um and feel better able to to handle life until we can get into therapy more long term um so yeah so those are the two books i think would be helpful Un, well three really so unavailable father emotionally absent mother And my new book, Traumatize, I think those could all be really helpful. I also, I mean, my first book, Are You Okay, has a lot of tools and techniques in it as well, although it's not really trauma specific. It's more like mental health in general. But yeah, I mean, those are just some resources and things that that hopefully will help you get through. I think let's let's use these 12 sessions. Let's get into it. Um, There's no I don't think you should wait two plus years before working on this. I think we should get in now and do it. And then I'd also ask when you're in counseling, if they can extend those sessions. So often they can. I had free sessions through my EAP. God, it was back like 13 years ago, right um, right around when my dad died. And I was supposed to only get like six sessions and they extended and extended and extended. And I don't even remember how many free sessions I got out of that, but I got a lot. So it's oh, it never hurts to ask. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, do you need a different type of therapy if you're autistic than if you're not? Good question. I recently spoke to a therapist because of self-harm and a worsening idea that everyone dislikes me, even though I have no reason to think so. Okay, so that's negative self-talk and lack of self-worth. And that can be related to our autism as well. Um, when it became relevant to one of her questions, I said that I have Asperger's and she immediately said that she can't help me. What? Instead, she said that I should join a group for autistic What? Okay, we'll get into this. Sorry, I'll keep reading. Said that I should join a group for autistic students. And I felt like she tried to end the call as fast as possible. It felt like she didn't think I could have any problem. That's not, I'm lonely because I'm autistic. And I don't think that group will help. It just seemed like a place to hang out and have fun, not discuss self-harm. Now, there was a comment on this. I'm just going to read through both of these because it, they're all connected. Says, so I've had this issue, too, with being turned away from mental health care for my entirely separate concern or for an entirely separate concern. I was coming in for multiple times. For example, I what I needed, oh, I needed and was seeking residential DBT and they had residential DBT, but they turned me away because all because I'm autistic. And they said they weren't sure they could accommodate me after an hour of an intake and conversation on the phone when they didn't know I was autistic the whole time or they seem to have any concerns about what needs I may have um, being capable of being accommodated up until I asked for, they asked for my diagnoses. They had seemingly no problems up until that moment. Um, and I'm wondering why so many therapists won't help autistic people, even if they're not coming to therapy for their autism, but for the type of therapy that a therapist specializes in treating. They seem to willingly individualize their treatments to adapt to their client's best interests all the time. Why is it that they don't even give us the same grace so often? Why won't they see us when they treat, um, They treat what we are asking for help with because we're autistic. Additionally, with the treatment of autism, I am such an intellectualizer and I don't have any cognitive distortions or untrue negative beliefs surrounding my trauma per my last therapist. And for this reason, it was really difficult to work on the hypervigilance issue that I have around it when it isn't tied to any logical fallacy that can be corrected. Is there a good trauma therapy modality to tackle this concern that doesn't really rely on changing my thoughts surrounding the trauma? Does exposure therapy work on this? Okay. So that at the end is kind of a separate question that we'll get into later. But overall, you don't need a different type of therapy if you're autistic. That's not like a hard and fast rule. I do want to say that a lot of therapists, and and this happens with eating disorders and self-injury as well. My patients with borderline personality disorder have found this to be true as well. When there's such a specialization, so there are clinicians that specialize in the treatment of autism, just like there are clinicians that specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, such as myself, self-injury, such as myself, borderline personality disorder, such as myself. We're very, we're very focused and we tend to, honestly, I could have filled my entire practice with just those patients because a lot of people don't see them because of a stigma around it. Like a lot of people think BPD patients are just going to get overly attached and threaten to kill themselves. It's not true, but a lot of people believe that. When it comes to autistic patients, a lot of people believe that you need to have been trained specifically in it, even if they're not coming to you for help with their autism. And if you don't understand it, then you would be what, what's called like it's out of our scope of practice, meaning like I don't have the proper training to help this person and therefore I can't see them. Now, here are my thoughts about it. So that that's my only understanding as to why it would be happening. But here are my thoughts now. I would not be able to treat someone who is autistic if they're coming to me for help with their autism, with the symptoms of autism that they're struggling with the most. I am not trained in that. I wouldn't feel like I was the best fit. And I actually have a wonderful psychologist in LA that I used to refer to all the time because that was her specialty. So I would refer out. And that would be why, because I don't have those tools or techniques. And that wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be working. And I I couldn't help you. And I wouldn't feel good about it be unethical for me to keep seeing you or to to actually see you at all. Now, on the flip side, if you came to me for self injury issues and eating disorder struggles, which spoilers, I have had a lot of patients who have comorbidity with autism, like they are have ASD or autism spectrum disorder, and struggle with an eating disorder. And then I see them because I specialize in eating disorder treatment. I usually like will request if they're you know, depending on the level of how how affected they are by their autism. What what if, is it like? Is it creating the eating disorder? What feeds into it? You know, I'll, I'll want to understand all of that stuff because there, we may need to have another clinician on board as well. But there's nothing to stop me from helping them with their eating disorder or self-injury urges or maybe even any symptoms of BPD. Right. Those are all within my wheelhouse. Uh, depression, anxiety, things that I can treat all the time. I will see them. I think a lot of therapists don't understand things. And when they don't understand, because they're people too, right? They're, They're not educated about it. Then they make stigmatizing judgments like, oh, can't see you. Oh, can't go into residential DBT. Like that really frustrates me. And I'm sorry that that's happening. And I feel like the more we talk about this, the better, because it's my feeling that we should be able to treat you for what you're struggling with if the autism becomes. So this would be I'm just this is just my thought process. So I would see you and let's say we're working through um, an eating disorder that you struggled with since you were a teenager and you're, let's say, in your late 20s now and coming to see me. And I know that you have autism spectrum disorder and you've you know, gotten help for your uh, stuff when you were a, a child and you had help with, the, I don't know, any autistic symptoms that were uncomfortable for you or whatever it may be. Right. You've already gotten support in that way. However, if we were working together and the eating stuff was coming along, we we're really challenging it. And then, you know, we found how intertwined it was with your autism. And I felt like in some ways it was over my head. I could do one of two things. Number one, I could refer you out to see someone who specializes while continuing to see you at the same time in conjunction. Or I could do my own research, read up on it and try to get myself to a point where I felt like it then was within my scope of practice. Does that make sense? It's like, I can try my best to educate and uh, coordinate with other clinicians who do specialize. I might do some consulting and pay for consultation from someone who specializes so that I can get, you know, make sure that I'm being ethical in in your treatment. Because I think the thing is as a therapist, you don't want to treat someone that you don't like essentially have the business treating like, I'm not, I don't understand it. I didn't train in it. So therefore it's not really ethical for me to treat it. And you always want to make sure that you are working within your scope of practice. And so that would be where that's coming from and the concerns, but I don't understand why I'd be like, Oh, you are artistic. Can't see you. I wouldn't act that way. It'd be more, I, I mean, maybe it's just the, how I am as a therapist, but I always have conversations with my patients. Like, Uh, even my patients who have suicide attempts in the past, I walk them through immediately, like, what's going to happen if I think they're at risk again? Here's a safety plan, put that in place right away. Here are the steps we're going to take. And when it comes to this, like, I would talk it out with you. I would say, hey, here are my concerns. These are the things I can help you with. Unfortunately, I'm not trained in the treatment of ASD. I'm happy to read up on a book if there's something that you recommend. But if it tiptoes too much into that space, then we're either going to have to find another clinician, to work in conjunction with, possibly refer you out to see them or, you know, those are our steps, right? And I would just be honest and open about it and communicate that so that there weren't any surprises. That would be my goal. So I'm sorry that that's happening. This is probably something we need to talk about more because that shouldn't be happening. Um, But yeah, those are my thoughts. Now, the final question was like talking about that, um, I'm such an intellectualizer, right? So talking about trauma and autism and additionally, right? I'm, I'm an intellectualizer. I don't have any cognitive distortions or untrue negative beliefs surrounding my trauma, but you intellectualize it, right? Um, it's really difficult to work on the hypervigilance issue that I have around it when it isn't tied. Oh, because it's not, you can't logic your way out of it, which I find not not funny, but like, the the irony of it, because intellectualization is a cognitive distortion. It is a false way of thinking, right? And so your normal go-to defense isn't working because PTSD isn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's not logical, right? It's emotional. And so exposure therapy could work on this, right? Exposing ourselves to triggers and working to calm ourselves down. But I also would encourage you to maybe dig into why you your urge to why why it's so comfortable to intellectualize things and what it would mean or what it did mean when i just told you that this isn't an intellectual problem not a logical problem it's an emotional one and like a body memory one um yeah what, what comes up for you with that and i think the body keeps the score is an amazing book that i would highly encourage you pick up and read um yeah, and it's so even in this question, is there a good trauma therapy modality to tackle this concern? We're just so all about it. It's like not not that that's like intellectualization, but it's just sometimes we just have to feel it. We have to recognize why this is coming up for us and why, like the hyper vigilance you're feeling. Where is it coming from? Is it is it a fear of safety? Is it a fear of security? Is it Uh, body memory that we have is it uh, what's the trigger can we can we track that back that might work to your benefit right that can we can use a little bit of our intellectualization to try to be a detective about it it doesn't always have to have a logical connection but can we make sense of it within our own history that's all I'm asking so be a detective about this I think exposure therapy definitely could work to help you out with this but again A lot of times these hypervigilance responses and being on edge is more of an emotional. It's like we're in fight flight all the time and we have to find ways to calm our system down. So it has nothing to do with logicking it out. And then secondly, we have to be curious about what's triggering this. Like, really, is it a certain emotion that comes up for us? Is it a, we can use our five senses. Is it one of this five senses that's triggering it? What's going on? Let's be curious. And that will give you more information and help you work through it. Okay. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, Hi, Katie, I hope you're doing well. Why is it that when you start trauma work, things seem to get worse? My psychologist got me to write out a list of events, scenarios of what happened in my life, and um, oh, and what has happened in my life that I would feel like I would blow. I struggled immensely with this because I don't like opening up and being vulnerable. Who does, right? But I pushed myself to do it. Yay! It was now four pages long and still going, but I still don't feel like it's warranting the way that I'm feeling. Oh, look at that invalidation and minimization. My emotions have been on the holidays for a long time now. So it could be this. Could this be the reason why I'm feeling this way? Yes, I think you're feeling overwhelmed because you haven't felt in a long time. Like you said, your feelings have been on the hol- on holiday for a long time and we finally brought them back. And so any feeling is going to feel like a lot because frankly, we're not used to allowing it. And so it's okay to let yourself feel it. I'm also wondering if it's normal or common to pick up old unhealthy coping skills when starting this type of work, and would, and would my psychologist know? I've um, often on since a teen been struggling with eating, never received help for it or a diagnosis or anything, self-harm, suicidal thoughts and attempts, and I'm too scared to mention anything to my psychologist, mainly about my eating and self-injury, even though she's truly amazing and I trust her more than anyone in my life. How can I overcome this? I've tried writing it down and practicing saying it out loud over and over, but I end up freezing. And I have I have voices in my head, literally screaming at me to not go there, and they cause a lot of noise. I feel like I'm going crazy. I'm tired of feeling this way. Any tips would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for all that you do in the community. That um, in the community is, has helped me so much. Of course, I'm so glad it's been beneficial. So let's answer a few of these questions now. When you start trauma work, the reason it gets better, it gets worse before it gets better. And I've described this in the past. It's it's like when we have a trauma happen, it's like our brain opens up this big uh, walk-in closet and starts shoving shit in it because it can't make sense of what took place, right? We've talked about how inside out where when we have like a regular day that isn't trauma-based, our brain creates this like narrative, meaning a story about it. Today I got up, I recorded the podcast, I had lunch, I did my little uh, yoga, I talked to my mom, right? It puts this story together, wraps it up nicely, and files it away in our long-term memory. However, trauma memories aren't neat and tidy like that. Sometimes we don't even remember certain things fully, right? We can uh, only remember a bit and piece from this part, and then a bit and piece from this part, and it's all scrambled, right? Or we can feel like that whole thing didn't happen at all, we just have body memories of it. So All of that mess gets shoved into that uh, big, deep closet that we've created. And we just kind of shut the door and and pile it up. Right. And then we get into trauma therapy and it's like we empty out that closet onto our floor and we try to piece it together and make sense to put it into those cohesive narratives. And for for a while, a long while, sometimes we have that mess on the floor. And it's not stuffed away and hidden away where we don't have to feel it. Right. It's out. It's there. And we're like, oh. And so that's why it feels worse at the beginning, because we have that mess that we have to start kind of piecing together, putting it into narrative form and filing away cleanly now. um, okay, so then the emotions, I explained the emotions on holidays and how anything's going to feel overwhelming because we haven't let ourselves feel them at all. And Yes, it's normal for your eating disorder and self-injury urges to come back because those are the ways that you've probably coped. That's probably some of the ways that you kept your emotions on holiday and stuffed it down, numbed out. Focus on that instead. Not that. And when we feel triggered, which trauma therapy unfortunately is triggering, they're going to come back with a vengeance. They're like, wait, wait, I'm here. I'm here. I'll help you numb out. I'll help you forget. Don't worry. I got this. And they come in and those urges can be strong. So please, please, please tell your psychologist. I know we get scared. We think, oh, they're going to put me in the hospital. They're going to overreact or they're going to not react at all and tell us it's not that big of a deal, which can be horribly invalidating and minimizing. So what I encourage you to do is to tell your therapist that you have these things you used to use as a kid and you find the urge is coming back and they haven't been back in years. And, you know, and I'd even say like, I don't want it to be minimized or invalidated. I know these are real issues. I wanted to let you know about them, and sometimes i struggled with eating, and I've had I've self harmed in the past, and had suicidal thoughts. And going through this trauma work has made those things come back a little bit. How do we? How do I overcome these? How do I work through it? Right? We're coming to them for support and help and understanding, which is what their job is, right? That's my job. And so practicing out what you want to say, maybe we write it out, like put it in our notes on our phone, or write it out by hand, bring it into our session and just read from it. If we can email our therapist, we can do that. There can be a lot of ways to get this stuff out so that we don't feel like we're stuck with it and we're alone with it because it's very, very normal. They come out to help us, right? There are numb out companions. They're like, this is a lot of feeling. No, 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 no. Right. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't fight back and that we can't prevent ourselves from using those unhealthy coping skills. And another way to even not use those unhealthy coping skills is to go to my video 25 coping skills on youtube and find some healthier versions to help you manage and i love the impulse log i talk about it on there it's in my book traumatized i love an impulse log that could be beneficial as well i hope that that helps you got this and all that you're going through is very normal it's what to be, what's to be expected when we're working through trauma so you don't have to judge yourself we're just doing our best Okay. now I had someone write a letter in. We have a question from an actual written letter. You guys, you remember written letters in the mail, snail mail. Our 10th and final question says, Hi, Katie, what causes someone like myself to get stuck in or with suicidal ideation? Is it because I haven't worked through every aspect of the trauma or is it because I'm constantly being triggered? I'm just not understanding why I can't seem to get rid of the suicidal ideation. Furthermore, how does one go about reversing a suicide plan? Since most plans take time to think through and prepare for, it's not like I'm going to wake up one morning and magically not want to end my life. In time and with healing, I can see that I may choose to not end my life. But how would you advise I go about reversing my plans without giving up my supplies just yet? Great questions. Okay, now we get stuck in suicidal ideation for many reasons. Um, It could be trauma related. It could be because you haven't worked through every aspect. Only you will know that because if you constantly feel like you're triggered then you haven't worked through it all because we're still hypervigilant. We still have a lot of those symptoms of PTSD. So we're going to need more tools and resources. And so if we're being triggered, our suicidal ideation, just like self-injury, eating disorders, uh, shopping addiction, uh, drug and alcohol addiction, It can be our way. It's like our out, our numb out. I mean, I know it seems very extreme and people are like, you know, why would you think that way? Because it feels hopeless and we feel helpless. And when we're triggered a lot and we feel like we can't manage and there's no other way to cope, we can feel like that's our only way to cope. I'm here to tell you that it's not, but that's the way our brain has been thinking and it's wired. And so it's going to take a while to unwire it. So I think that you probably haven't worked through all of your trauma and that's why you're being constantly triggered. And that's why the suicidal ideation is still there now. We don't have to reverse our suicide plan. What we have to do is to put in place a safety plan that we commit to utilizing before taking any action. Now, I have a whole video about suicide safety plans. You can look on my uh, YouTube, just Katie Morton safety plan it should pop up. I think I actually might have two of them or maybe maybe more. Um, but put one of those together with your therapist. And I think um, instead of looking, instead of thinking that you have to wake up one morning and not want to end your life, what if instead we considered Today. I've had patients just make daily or hourly commitments to not taking their own life. Depends on where we're at and how severe this is. Usually, for outpatient, meaning not in the hospital or not in a treatment facility, daily is is my goal if they can't do a daily commitment then I think they need a higher level of care right but we can do check-ins we can see and we can even I've had patients leave me with some of the their whatever the means to take their life or maybe self-injury tools I've even had patients leave those with me and I, I put them in a lockbox and I keep them until next week and then I ask them do you want them back right and we have this conversation so you don't feel like you have to get rid of everything all at once and you have to commit to not wanting to take your own life but can we play around with the thought that Maybe, maybe that's not our goal anymore. Maybe we aren't so actively suicidal. Maybe we don't want to kill ourselves. And I know that that seems, you're like, Katie, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem like a good thing. It's a bridge statement. We're building a bridge from our suicidal plans into a place where we're like, you know what, I actually think I might enjoy my life a little, but even that thought can be super uncomfortable. And we can think like, no, 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 I don't deserve to have that. Maybe I should just do it. Right. And so we're, we're playing around with a new way of thinking. We're playing around with the potential that we might be, maybe don't, want to do that anymore and it's okay to be curious about those healthy thoughts to feel uncomfortable with them and to have someone hold on to some of your stuff for a little while your supplies and write about then journal about how that made you feel to not have them you know because a lot of times we just like to have that out okay what does it mean to have that out what would it mean if I didn't have it for a week could I sustain you know it's I know it doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem direct enough but I'm here to tell you that it's exactly what we have to do because we can't just black and white all or nothing in and out we have to move ourselves slowly there so that it's sustainable so that we know life can get better and we don't have those urges anymore and it just takes some time to work our way there but that's why safety plans are key letting our therapist know and you know considering leaving our supplies for a little while see how that makes us feel I hope those answers were helpful. Thank you all so much for writing in. Thank you for all your support and all your love. You guys are just wonderful. I love how you answer each other's questions and talk with each other in the comments. I love our community so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your week and weekend. And I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Katie